Tower. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with our family this morning. Glad to be with you. Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, sorry, 26, that's where we're going to be today. 1 Samuel 26. And as you turn there, I want to welcome you again. If you're a guest today, uh, we're glad you can be our guest. As Stephen said earlier, we'd love to connect with you. So if you have a moment to fill out a connect card, we would love to connect and pray with you and see how we could be a blessing uh, in your life as a church. We would love that. 1 Samuel 26. We're going to cover most of the chapter again, but as we've been doing through this long series through Samuel, we're only going to read the beginning of the chapter. So we're going to read the first 12 verses, and then we'll cover the rest as we go. If you're there, say amen. 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 Hear the reading of God's word. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Achillah, which is on the east of Jeshemah? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshemah. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul was coming after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. And then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And then David said to Himelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. And so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointing. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. And so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. And no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, when love isn't enough. When love isn't enough. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, uh, we're so grateful today as we enter into this week of Thanksgiving, as we celebrate all that you've given. God, you have given us so much. And one of the most precious gifts that you've given is your word. We're thankful, we're grateful that you are a God who speaks to us. And so, Lord, make us a people who listens. Help us to be a people who receive your word and take it into action, that we trust it, we live by it, and we're transformed by it. May you do that even today as we sit under your word together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there was a man by the name of John Shore 
who uh, was an English trumpet player in the late 17th and 18th centuries. And he actually became famous in his time because he was one of the earliest people to play the trumpet as a musical instrument. Before his time, most people played the trumpet and assumed that the trumpet was really a military instrument, right? It was the kind of thing that you played when you were uh, at war with somebody or going to war with somebody. And so he uh, kind of made it popular to make this into an instrument that you could use for musical ability. And so he, he became this incredible trumpet player, but that's actually not his greatest contribution to history. His greatest contribution to history was he invented the tuning fork. Maybe, maybe you've seen this, this device. It's small. It's, uh, it's, it's incredibly brilliant, but it's, it's very simple. It's, it's basically just a, a piece of metal, usually steel, that's formed into two long prongs that are in the shape of a U, if you can imagine that, if you've never seen one before. And the idea of a tuning fork is that you would strike the tuning fork, and when it was struck, it would create perfect pitch. It would create this perfect tune that, that you could then tune the other instruments that you were trying to tune. And that's, that's exactly why John Shore created it. He had all these instruments. He was this incredible musician, and he wanted to make sure they were in tune. But then it kind of took off, and it had a life of its own, and people started using the tuning fork for uh, mathematics and scientific research and building clocks and watches and all these different things. And here's the thing about a tuning fork. This is what I want you to give. A tuning fork, when you strike it, it needs both prongs to, to give out the perfect pitch. In other words, if it's struck and it's vibrating and it's, it's giving off this sound, if you hold just one of those prongs, it'll stop. There won't be any sound. The perfect pitch will disappear. And, and so what the idea is, is that you need both of them. One of the prongs alone is not enough to make that sound. One is not enough to give off this perfect, pure sound that can then resonate with everything else around it. What I want to propose to you this morning is that is exactly how faith and love works. That the way faith and love work is that there's, there's these two elements, these two prongs of the tuning fork that in order to make the perfect, pure sound of the gospel, it requires both. Now, often in the church, we usually talk about it only on one side of it. Right? If you've been in the church a while, or maybe you haven't, you probably still heard this. Faith without works is dead, right? It's a famous passage from James, or you might have heard it in Paul's language, where he talks about it as faith exercising or, or working itself out in love. It's the same idea that faith by itself is useless, Right? Faith, we're, we're saved by faith alone in Jesus. It's, it's by our faith in him that he saves us, but that faith in Jesus now becomes something else. Right? If it remains faith alone by itself, it's not useful, it's not helpful. In fact, it's even dangerous. It feels irrelevant, hypocritical. It has to become something more. It has to turn into works, into love, right? Now, what about the other side of that? If faith requires love, does love require faith? In short, yes. And especially, this is what I want to look at today, especially when you're talking about enemies. Especially when you're talking about enemies. Because when you're talking about loving enemies, you're talking about a situation where you're trying to love someone who isn't returning the love back to you. Right, And if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about chapter 24 in 1 Samuel, and uh, we were looking at how there's different 
kinds of enemies, right? And how many of us, we don't like to call someone an enemy because it feels like you're, you're labeling them for life. And you're going to put them in a category that's going to maybe harm them or harm your relationship with them. But, but what we saw is that the Bible really has different categories of enemies. You can have a short-term enemy and you can have a long-term enemy. It can be somebody who's against you just for this season, for an hour or a day or a couple of weeks or a year, whatever it may be. But for this season, they are against you. And let me tell you, when you love that kind of person, it takes faith. Because when you love the person who you're giving them love and they're returning hate, or you're giving them blessing and they're returning cursing, you're giving generously and they're taking from you, eventually you wear out. You wear out. And so you need another source. You need something that can fill you up, right? In other words, faith without love never begins. But love without faith, it never lasts. Love alone isn't enough. It needs faith. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're continuing this series through the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, it, it's been quite a series. We're in chapter 26, I promise you. We're going to get to the end one of these days. Uh, but 1 Samuel, we, we were two weeks ago talking about a very similar topic. And as I said, we were talking about enemies. And, and this may actually feel like a rerun. It might feel like you turned on, uh, I don't know, one of your favorite rerun shows, uh, Fresh Prince or The Office or I don't know what you all watch, The Price is Right, one of those shows that just has like forever reruns, it just keeps going and going and you get so familiar with the show, it just feels right, right? It feels comfortable. That's what this story feels like. If you were paying attention a couple weeks ago in chapter 24, there are so many similarities, you might wonder, is this the same story? Because here we are, again, David is running for his life from King Saul. Again, David is being chased down so that he can be killed by King Saul. Again, David is put in a place where Saul is put on a platter before him, and he has the opportunity to kill his enemy. And again, David says no. So what's different about this time? Why is this story in the Bible? Why is it the same thing over and over again? Well, here's what I would propose is that it's really displaying something slightly different but incredibly important. In the first story, we have David's love on display. In this second story, we have David's faith on display. And the two of them are inseparable. They have to be together. And so that's what I want to look at today, is that David's faith is what's energizing his love for his enemy. How does our faith energize our love for our enemies? That's what I want to look at. So first, if you're taking notes today, we're going to look at the patience of faith, the patience of faith. Look at me at verse 6. That's where we're going to jump into the story. It says this, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. And so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Now we've got to back up for a second because to catch you up to speed of what's happening, Saul hears that David is in this particular space. He gets word from somebody who's basically telling on David that, hey, didn't you hear that David is in the wilderness of Ziph? 
And so Saul says, okay, we're going all out. And so it's, it's basically a rerun of last time. Saul gathers the same 3,000 soldiers. They go to the wilderness of Ziph, but this time David sees them coming. This time David and his men see Saul coming, and so they, they are prepared. They're ready. And David, instead of retreating in fear, decides, you know what? We're going to go to them. We're going to go into their camp. And he turns to his soldiers and he says, all right, who's going with me? I mean, have you lost your mind, David? Didn't you just see all these people? There's 3,000 of Saul's best soldiers. There's 600 of us, and we're not even really soldiers. We're just a bunch of people in the wilderness wandering around without food. And then Abishai, David's nephew, raises his hand, and he says, I'll go. I'll go. You need those kind of friends, right? Abishai says, I'll go. And so they, they go down to Saul's encampment in the middle of the night in the cover of darkness, and they, they sneak in, and somehow they sneak all the way to King Saul, where he's laying asleep. They sneak all the way up to him, and all of his guards around him, all of his leaders are sleeping. Everyone's asleep. No one knows they're there. And Saul's spear is sitting next to or actually stuck in the ground next to him. And now this is a touch of irony in the story, because this is the same spear that David was, was being chased by Saul with, and Saul threw the spear a couple times, trying to kill David with that spear. And then later, Saul finds out that Jonathan, his own son, is helping David, and so he throws the spear at his own son, Jonathan, tries to kill Jonathan. And so Abishai, who, you know, in the middle of the night, in the cover of darkness, he looks over at David, and he, he decides, we're going to have a little theological conversation here. And he whispers to David, he says, I think the Lord has set this up. The Lord has set this up. He, he's given you your enemy right here. In fact, he's given me the spear right here. I'll take his spear and I'll drive it through his head. No one will even know it. It would have been a touch of irony, Abishai is thinking, to kill Saul with the spear he tried to kill you with. And then David whispers back his own theology in verse 10. He says this, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. In other words, David's saying, I don't know how God is going to do it. I don't know what the means are that he's going to accomplish this, but I do know that he's going to do it. And I do know that he is the one to do it and not me. That this is not my job, this is not my work to, to kill the king, because that is what God has promised to take care of. He will take care of my enemies. In other words, God will work, we're going to wait. And after David chooses again to wait and to love his enemy Saul without any return of love, now we learn why they're able to sneak into the camp and get so close to the sleeping king. Look at verse 12, and then I'll pause for a minute. Verse 12, it says this, So David took the spear and the jar of the water from Saul's head, and they went away. And then, look, get this, No man saw it or knew it, nor did anyone awake for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. In other words, what the narrator is telling us is that even before David turned to his men and said, who's going with me? God was already going before him. Even before David said, you know what? Or before Abishai said, you know what? We should kill him. God was already working on their behalf. God was already there present in the moment. 
He was already preparing the place for them. He was already preparing what was going to happen. God was at work. And so David could be patient in the moment because he was rooted in God's providence. He knew God was at work. See, listen, faith trusts God's already working while we're waiting. Faith trusts that God is already working while we are in the middle of waiting. Now listen, faith is always this rhythm of back and forth, working and waiting and working and waiting and working. And here's the problem. Here's what's difficult. We work when it's our time to work, and then we wait when it's God's time to work. That's how it happens, right? In other words, it takes wisdom to know the difference. And one of of the most clear things in the scripture about when we know it's our time to wait and it's God's time to work is in this kind of situation. Romans 12, 9 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You hear that? God is making it very clear. Vengeance is my work not your work. Vengeance is what I'm going to do. I've not called you to have revenge. I've not called you to hold bitterness. I've not called you to to have this grudge and to try to attack and to get after them. I have called you to wait while I work on that issue. I'll work on your behalf if you'll wait and let me work. Now notice for a minute, this, this doesn't mean that God is indifferent towards evil. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about injustice. It doesn't mean, you know, shut up and, and, and suck it up. Don't, don't do anything about it. It, it doesn't mean that, that you wait and you, you become a doormat where you, you just allow evil to overtake your life. That is not what he's saying. But what David has realized, what David has realized is if, if he is going to actually address the issue in the way that God has called him to do it, it has to be in God's way, with God's wisdom, through God's work. In other words, he, he's saying that I, I can't take this vengeance on myself and not become like the enemy that I'm trying to take vengeance on. I, I can't become someone who's now filled with such rage and bitterness and hate that now I become just like the person I'm trying to get revenge on. We become no better. We're filled with the same violence, the same bitterness, the same greed, the same evil that's at work against us has now overcome us. But listen, we we might not know the means of God's work, but we do know the end of his work. We do know the end. He will bring justice for his people. He will work while we wait. While we wait, we bless. While we wait, we pray. While we wait, we protest. While we wait, we love. While we wait, this is our work towards our enemies. See, what we find is God is already working way before we ever got there. Way before we ever got there. He's been organizing our protection. He's been orchestrating our victory. He's been arranging our favor. He has been working in and around us before we were ever there. As David says, as the Lord lives, you catch that? As he is a living, active, loving God, I wait. I wait. So now, where, where do we find the hope to wait like that patiently? Because that, that is a difficult work. The work of waiting is often harder than the work of working. 
Let's look next at the promise of faith. This is the second point, the promise of faith. Look at verse 17. The story goes on like this. It says, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. Now pause there for a minute uh, to catch you up again because we're skipping through a little bit faster. David now and Abishai, they leave as we read, right? They leave and they take Saul's spear. They take his water jug. I'm not exactly sure why they take his water jug. Maybe they were thirsty. I don't know. But they take his water jug and his spear and they walk away from the camp off to another hill. And, and, and this hill is, is separated from them a far enough distance to keep them safe. And then David turns around and he yells across the gap. And he grabs their attention. And he says to them, hey, look what I've got. And Saul, he hears their voice. He hears David's voice. And uh, he, you, know, you can imagine he's kind of waking up, still a little groggy, trying to think, is this a dream? What's going on right now? Why am I waking up? Is that David that I'm hearing? Is that him way out on that hill yelling at us? I mean, he's so confused. And then David confirms it. Yes, it's me. And David holds up his spear this is the spear of Saul, holds up his spear and his water jug and says, here's the proof. I'm not against you. I've told you this before that I'm not against you. I spared your life one time and now I had a chance to spare your life again and I've done it. Saul, what more proof do you need? I am not against you. I'm for you. And Saul, when he hears this, he starts to weep. He starts to to lament, and look at how he responds in verse 21. He says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do no more harm to you, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Now, here we go again. Here we go again. We've heard this before. In chapter 24, as soon as Saul gets caught, He's, uh, you know, crying, he's remorseful, he's saying, I'm never going to do this again, I'm sorry, and nothing changed. And now here we are again, the same thing has happened. He's been caught, he's been spared, and here he is again, saying, I've sinned, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And listen, David, nothing has changed at this point. Saul, Saul is still trying to kill him, Saul is still chasing him, Saul is still wanting to wipe out David. And David, when he hears this, he, he, he doesn't buy into the bait. In fact, Saul tries to, to lure him in. He says, just, just return to me, David. I, I won't harm you. I promise I've changed. But David doesn't listen to Saul's promises. He doesn't trust that he's changed. He trusts in the Lord. This is incredible here. Look at verse 24. David says back to him, he says, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. In other words, what David is saying is this, Saul, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care that, that you're making promises to me and that you've said you've changed and that I'm, I'm not going to be harmed by you. I am not putting my trust in you thinking I'm precious. I'm putting my trust in the Lord who does believe I'm precious. I'm putting my trust not in you because you're always changing. You, one minute you say this, the next minute you say that, the next minute you say this. I'm putting my trust in the unchanging God who I know for sure is for me. I know for sure he's for me. And so he fixes on God 
Listen, faith trusts not in changing enemies, but in unchanging God. That that's what faith has to do. Faith has to say, I'm not going to trust in changing my enemies. I'm going to put my trust in the unchanging God. In 1970, on day six of the Apollo 13 mission to the moon, uh, you may have seen the movie in the 1990s. Apollo 13, that's probably your best bet right there. Uh, but but on, on that day, they ran into a problem. Right? They ran into a problem, and they had this problem where they had to have a major course correction, but they didn't have enough fuel. They didn't have enough power to let that happen. And so they had to turn off their computer that was basically their way of knowing how to steer through space. And so they turned off the computer, but they still had a ways to go. They famously still had 39 seconds to go, and now they would have to go that 39 seconds without any computer to steer them. And so one of the astronauts on board, his name was Jim Lovell, he came up with this brilliant idea that in order to steer, we need a fixed point in front of us. We need something that we can aim towards, right? I don't need a computer as long as I got something that I'm aiming towards that's going to stay still. And so, of course, they picked their destination, Earth. And so you could see Earth through the window. And so for that 39 excruciating seconds... They aimed their eyes and everything that they had at earth, and they tried to steer as best they could towards that direction, and it saved them from disaster. But here's why. It's because they were focused on what was unchanging, not what was changing. Right? They were focused on the unchanging fixed point in their life that was faithful, not what was going to change. Listen to me carefully. Our enemies may never change because ironically, they're always changing, right? One moment they make a promise, next moment they break it. One moment they're genuine, the next moment they're fake. One moment there's progress happening, another moment all the progress is lost. You want to know why? Because our enemies are just like you and me. They're struggling sinners who are unpredictable and unfaithful and failing every day. And so listen to me. Let me give you a little wisdom. If you put your faith and your trust in their transformation, you're going to be disappointed. If you put your faith and your trust in how they are going to be changed and different and what promises they've made to you, you're going to be disappointed. So what can you do? Well, in the chaos of back and forth love with enemies who aren't going to return your love, they're not going to love you in the way you need What you have to do is fix your eyes on the one who is unchanging, the one who does not change, not on the changing of our divisive politicians, not on the changing of our gossiping co-workers, not on the changing of our rebellious children, not on the changing of our enemies of any kind. You are focused on the unchanging God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He becomes our focus with our enemies. So I want to pause for a second and ask you this. What, what do you believe about the way God sees you? What do you believe about the way God sees you? Because I think many of us today, we, we unconsciously maybe even, we, we believe that God treats us the way our enemies treat us, conditionally. Right? When we treat God well, he treats us well back. When we bless God, he blesses us back. When, when we say the right things, he will do the right things, right? And so we have this, this relationship with God that's based on conditionality. And so most of our life, we walk through this, this low-level anxiety about, I'm going to mess something up, and God is going to look at me harshly. 
But I want you to know this. If you're in Christ, the, the, the blessing of the gospel is this, that he gives you his unchanging favor and love in his son Jesus. You can say with David, you can say, I know that I am, I am delightful in the Lord's eyes. I, I am cherished in his eyes. And, and so my enemies may hate me one moment and love me the next, but I know my God will love me every moment of my life. I know that my God will love me when I'm failing. I know that my God will be for me when I've failed. I know that my God will be for me when everyone else is against me. He will be for me. Because that's who he is. God is for us, not against us. He's with us, not distance from us. He's, he's redeeming us, not condemning us. He is looking on you with unchanging favor in Jesus. That's who he is. And so we fix our eyes, as Hebrews says, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who from the beginning to the end is the faithful one. And so how do, how do we do that? How, how does God, this unchanging God, bring about such an incredible gospel promise? It's through a process of pain. And this is the last point, and I'll close. The pain of faith, the pain of faith. See, we've mentioned the past three weeks uh, that, that David's wilderness experience, he, he's been in the wilderness now for a long time, kind of wandering through the wilderness, being chased by King Saul, all through these chapters in 1 Samuel. And we've been talking about how there's parallels between David in the wilderness and Jesus in the wilderness. And so we talked, I think the last two weeks really, about Jesus starting off his ministry in the wilderness. God calls him into the wilderness, and as he gets there, the enemy shows up and he tempts Jesus. He tempts him to protect himself, to provide for himself, to prioritize himself, right? And all of these temptations in various ways are basically saying to Jesus, avoid suffering, avoid pain. You can, you can do things that will benefit your life and make your life comfortable. You can be the king. Choose yourself. Well, Jesus, of course, as we looked at, he, he overcomes those temptations in the wilderness, but the wilderness comes back. In fact, the wilderness comes back at the end of Jesus' ministry. So he starts in the wilderness, but then at the end of his ministry, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's warning them right before he, he ends his time here. He says, the, the Messiah must suffer and die. The Messiah must be killed at the hands of his enemies. And when the disciples hear this, Peter, he, he rises up. There's something in Peter that says, that, that's just wrong. I mean, listen to what Peter says in Matthew 16. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I mean, Peter's idea of a Messiah was not someone who gets killed by his enemies, but someone who kills his enemies, right? The Messiah's job was to wipe out all their enemies. The Messiah's job was to make everybody comfortable and their life great and to return Israel back to its glory, right? That was your job, Jesus. How, how can you be a Messiah and let the enemy kill you? Do you hear it? Jesus is back in the wilderness. Do you hear the same voice coming back to Jesus? And Jesus catches this. He recognizes the voice of the enemy. And so Jesus says back to Peter, rather kindly, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is saying to Peter, I've, I've heard this voice before. 
I've heard that you, you are calling me into a life of avoiding what God has called me to do. You're, you're calling me to choose myself, to choose myself over everybody else. But listen, I, I, I've heard this before. And this is not the way of the Lord. You're calling me to, to choose revenge, to choose violence, to overcome my enemies by their death. But that's not what I've come to do. See, as the true and better David, Jesus refuses to take vengeance into his own hands. He goes on to tell us and to tell Peter, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For here it is, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus knew that his work was not revenge. It was redemption. It was redemption. Jesus knew that he came not to take up a spear to kill his enemies, but to take up a cross to die for his enemies. He came not to, to, to bear a sword, but to, to bear a cross on his back with a crown of thorns. He came not to save his life, but to lose it for the sake of his family. Right? Jesus knew that if I'm going to make these enemies into family, into sons and daughters, I would have to give myself for them. Not get revenge for them, but get redemption for them. Jesus came to give himself in that way that he might secure for us the unchanging favor of his heavenly father. Jesus endures the pain of our sin for the promise of our salvation. He was crucified with the punishment that we deserve. He was innocent, never sinning against us, his enemies, and yet he chose to take our place on the cross. He was condemned for our guilt. He was rejected for our shame. He was hanging on the cross as his last breath was leaving his body. And he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He couldn't see how God was working in the moment, but he knew that God was working. He knew that the end was what God had promised. He just didn't enjoy the means. He didn't know how God was going to work in the present. So he waited he waited in faithfulness. He waited for all to be accomplished. He waited with nails in his hands and feet. He waited until his last words, it is finished. Yeah. And then he waited even more, three days in the grave. And the son of man, listen, he said he must suffer, but he also must rise again. Yeah. And so yeah. early that Sunday morning, Jesus got up. Jesus got up with all power in his hands, but all promise in his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. God's wrath for his enemies was now love for his family. Jesus had taken all our failures, all our brokenness, all our selfishness, and he left it in the grave. Yeah. He left it in the grave. He gave his life for us to have new life, a new life with God's smile over us, a new life with God's favor over us, a new life with God's pleasure over us, a new life secure in his love forever. See, the gospel's radical news is that Jesus comes to die for his enemies so that his enemies become his family forever. That's the love, the, the power of love that we need and we gain through faith. And so do you need the faithful love of Jesus to energize your love today? That's what he promises us. The love and faithfulness of Jesus energizes us for the work he's called us to. And so if you're, if you're here this morning and you're trying to, to love your enemies without the love of Jesus by faith fueling you, you're going to wear out. You're going to burn out. But Jesus says you can come to me when you're tired and weary and broken and, and you've been loving and you're exhausted 
And he'll fill you up. He'll fill you up with the same energy and love and grace that he was given for him to love us. It's the same power that was working in Jesus is now working in us. Let's go to him. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful, so grateful beyond measure that what you have done for us in sparing your enemies, in rather than taking revenge, you redeem us. You redeem us by giving your life for us in our place. Rather than taking life, you give it. And so, Lord, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that it not only transforms us, and for eternity we have your smile upon us, it also transforms our hearts to be transforming towards others. It gives us the power and the grace to do what you've called us to do by faith. And so we trust you. We wait on you. We ask that your gospel promise would help us to wait with patience, with grace, with love. Give us wisdom to know when to work and when to wait. When to pray, when to act. Help us, Lord, to trust you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.